Amen. So, <clears throat> yeah, I'm sorry that there's no um, handouts this morning, and there's also uh, no children's curriculum, and so <laughs> it's just that time of the year, I think. Um, but, you know, God still wants to speak to us, and um, God, I believe God still has a word for us um, this morning. Um, now, we've come on, John looked last week at chapter 13 and uh, verses uh, 1 to 17, Um, And we're going to look on at the second part of the passage. I mean, what's happening in the context here is um, that basically a cleansing is going on. A cleansing is going on. Um, Jesus is purging out his disciples. He's purging out the contamination, basically, of Judas. Um, There's one among that group, Judas, who is not all that he seems to be. Now, we know that later on in chapters 14 and so on, Jesus continues with what we call the upper room discourse. Um, And in those chapters, Jesus is really revealing a lot of very deep truths to his disciples. He's revealing the deep truths about where he's going to heaven. He's revealing the deep truths about abiding in the true vine. He's revealing deep truths about the coming of the Holy Spirit But before he does that, a cleansing is taking place. And that cleansing um, took place um, uh, figuratively when Jesus washed his disciples' feet. It spoke of something deeper. But what we see happening in verses 18 to 38 is that a cleansing is happening before the upper room discourse and before Jesus reveals these deep truths to his followers. Um, But, you know, you can just imagine kind of the shock and the terror that really happens when Jesus comes out um, with saying, you know, one of you is going to betray me. He'd, he'd said that in verse 10. He'd alluded to that. He said, you are all clean, but not all of you. And then suddenly in verse 21, he comes out with these sort of shocking words. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Um, So that was a huge shock. And Judas had done a really impressive job of fooling everybody. He'd been Jesus, in many ways, Jesus' right-hand man over the last uh, three years. Um, He'd walked with Jesus, eaten with Jesus, had breakfast with Jesus. He'd cast out demons in Jesus' name. He'd healed in Jesus' name. And he was in the very inner sanctum of Jesus' followers. Um, And not only that, Judas must have been trusted in the group of the disciples, mustn't he? Because if you trust someone, then if you didn't trust someone, you wouldn't give them the the, the job of treasurer, would would you? So, um, um, you know, uh, Paul and I do the church um, uh, counting between us, so hopefully that means that people generally trust us. Um, But but certainly you wouldn't give someone the job of um, counting the money if you didn't trust them. So Judas, everyone was shocked that this had happened with Judas. So really, what we're talking about today is the pain of betrayal, the pain of betrayal, how it feels to be betrayed, and what the implications of that are. But you know, what I really want to talk about, and what I think that the Lord has led me to speak to you about more than the pain of betrayal this morning, is about the love of Jesus, about a love that conquers despite the pain of betrayal. Despite the blackness of the night that Judas' betrayal kind of created, what we see is we see Jesus' love 
blazing through it all. And as we see the love of Christ, then I pray that that's going to impact us this morning. So I've got five points to share with you this morning um, about the love of Jesus, but we're just going to consider that briefly. Now, the first point on the screen before us is that the love that Jesus shows us is a love that conquers the pain of betrayal. His love is a love that conquers the pain of betrayal. I don't know whether any of you have been betrayed in the past. Um, I suspect that we've all um, been betrayed and betrayed other people because that's the nature of human existence, isn't it? We are both perpetrators of sin and we are also victims of sin. But an act of betrayal by, by your friends, by your family, by your spouse, um, it has the potential not only to damage your life, to impede your life, but it has the potential to actually destroy life as you know it. Betrayal can be that painful. If you think about um, unfaithfulness within a marriage, you think about the ramifications that that may have, um, if you think about the impact of slander um, or someone accusing your character falsely, um, they are not light things to deal with. Um, and they can not only you know, damage your life, but they can actually destroy your life entirely. But as I say, tragically, betrayal is, is part and parcel of life in this fallen world. And many biblical characters knew about betrayal, didn't they? Um, who do we think of? We think of Joseph. Um, he was betrayed, wasn't he, by his own brothers and uh, chucked into the pit of the Midianite traders. Um, but above all, we think of David. We think of David. And uh, David, one of his closest counsellors and confidants, when he was being betrayed by his own son, Absalom, his closest confidant and his closest friend defected to the other side. Um, and his name was Ahitophel, which I can never pronounce. Um, and David talks, it's on the screen behind me, but David talks about the, the gut-wrenching pain of that betrayal. He says, It is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion and acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. So David talks about that, someone he'd walked with, someone who was a brother to him, someone he'd opened up his heart to, someone he'd shared with. And it was no different for Jesus we know that Jesus, obviously he was God incarnate, but he was also a man. And he also knew what it was like to share in every aspect of our human experience. And so that betrayal was just as painful for him. If we just look at the text briefly, and um, it talks about, there's a direct quote there from Psalm 41 and verse 9. And it talks about, he who has eaten bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. And so eating bread, especially in that culture, was a sign of very close and intimate friendship. Even as it is today, if you have someone at your table, that's a sign of the closest possible friendship. And yet this person turned against him. And then he says, has lifted up his heel against me. And the image there is, is really the image of, of a horse which kicks violently 
against its owner, of having a horse, and the horse turns on its owner, and it starts to kick him violently. So Jesus poured into Judas. He'd been pouring into Judas for three years, um, only to have Judas throw it back in his face, to premeditatedly go behind Jesus' back and sell him for 30 pieces of silver. Now, in verse 21 we read that Jesus was troubled in spirit. Now, that's a fascinating word in the Greek. That word troubled in spirit is the word terasso, and it means to be deeply disturbed, to be gut-wrenchingly in pain, basically. Um, And that word is used of, of Jesus only a few other times in the Bible. One of the times was when Jesus weeps at Lazarus' death, if you remember, um, and another time is in John 12, 27, when Jesus contemplates his own death and he said, now my soul is troubled. It's terasso, um, it's, t- it's churning within me. There's this deep disturbance of spirit. There's this deep trouble within me. Everything within me is troubling and churning. But you know, I believe that even in this situation, even in the pain of Jesus' betrayal, I believe that the trouble and the pain within him was churning not so much for his own um, betrayal, for his own sense of being betrayed and forsaken by someone who he thought he could count on, but it was moved and troubled for the sake of the disciples. It was moved and troubled for the sake of the disciples. You know, when we're in pain, when, when I'm in pain and when you're in pain, what tends to happen is our vision tends to narrow. We tend to fixate on our own pain, whether it's physical or emotional. And that's the natural and the human thing to do. But the thing that Jesus does is he doesn't focus so much on his own pain to the extent that he's consumed by it. But his main concern is the disciples and how they're feeling. Do you remember when we were looking at in Philippians? Do you remember the book of Philippians? And do you remember Paul talked about this character called Epaphroditus? And um, Epaphroditus had become sick almost to the point of death because he was delivering a gift um, to the church there. And he'd, we don't know whether it was just the fact that he'd served so hard or that he'd just been in a very perilous situation. But it seems that as a result of this, Epaphroditus had become sick um, basically to the point of death. Um, but what, what we find very telling is that um, Paul says, um, in Philippians, he says, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, since he was longing for you all. And he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. So even when Epaphroditus was on death's door, even when Epaphroditus was basically lying on the ITU bed of the time, so to speak, his main concern was how the news would impact others. And you know, it's at times like that that really what is inside us comes out. What is inside us doesn't tend to come out when everything is easy, but it's when we're crushed and when we're pressed. And if we're honest, what comes out is not always good, and so that should be a challenge to us. Um, Jesus put it like this. He said that a good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good. But an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what's interesting, my first point here, is that the love of Jesus 
it, it overcomes even the pain of betrayal. Because even when he's betrayed, his love conquers. How many times a day do we betray Jesus? How many times a day do you and I betray Jesus? Um, how often are we in the office or at work and we just kind of hang our heads in shame because we don't want to be associated with you know, one of those crazy Bible bashers? Um, how many times a day do we betray Jesus by choosing to add more to the sin that brought him to the cross? How many times a day do we do that? As the song says, you know, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. So how often is our voice among the scoffers? We betray Jesus every day. Um, and how much pain does that betrayal cause Jesus? A lot of pain. Um, but you know that despite that, his love for you remains strong and constant. So even if you've betrayed Jesus this week, um, Jesus still loves you. And Jesus' love for you is strong and constant. But you know, the second thing about that love is that it's a love that conquers by overcoming evil with good. It overcomes evil with good. You know, one of the, one of the unsettling things, I think, about evil, one of, the, one of the scary things about evil is how good evil can be at packaging itself as good. And, and that ability is devilish, basically, in itself. That is a devilish thing to be able to do, to be able to present yourself, or for someone to be able to present themselves to masquerade as good. And that is exactly what Judas had done. He, he, he'd played the model disciple. He was the perfect disciple. No one suspected a thing. Look at verse 22. The disciples are all looking at each other. You know, who is it? You, you, you know, who could it be? And because they were so surprised, there was nobody who stood out as an obvious candidate. Um, you know, it's always surprising to me that, um, you know, when you look in the, on the news and you see someone who's done, like, some horrible crime and you look at their face and say, can I kind of discern evil in that face? Um, but, you know, often you can't. Often you can't because evil is, is, is subtle and evil is a deceiver. Um, you know, we read in 2 Corinthians that the servants of Satan have an ability to masquerade themselves as servants of the light, very convincingly indeed. You know, it says in 2 Corinthians, it says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, they transform themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So the ability of evil to masquerade as good. But you know, I want, what I just briefly want you to consider, just for a couple of minutes with me, is the actual table itself that Jesus and his disciples were sitting around. You've probably read the, have you read the Da Vinci Code? Some of you, you may have done. It is quite a good page turner. Um, it's very, very bad in terms of its theology, <laughs> but it is quite a good page turner. But you know, Da Vinci, um, da Vinci um, obviously, he, he, he painted his famous picture of Jesus and his disciples, and they were all sitting at a table, weren't they? Um, but actually, what would happen in the time is, is they would really have a U-shaped table. They would all sit eating, reclining, and leaning on the left elbow, especially for important times because it would be a sign of freedom and sort of relaxation. 
And that's why it seems a bit strange when you're reading about, like, you know, John, you know, leaning on Jesus' breast, and you think, that's, that's odd, how would you be doing that at a meal sitting up? But that was basically because they were all reclining anyway, and they were all sort of leaning over to each other, saying, oh, did you, did you get that? Did you, you know, whatever. So, so that, was just, that was just normal. Um, but what's very interesting is about the layout of the table. Because on the right of Jesus was John, and you know, John always refers to himself very modestly in his gospel as the beloved disciple. Um, <laughs> um, um, but do you know who was on the left? Can you guess? Judas. Judas was on the left. And do you know, do you know what the left was? The left was the place that you would reserve for an honoured guest. The honoured guest went on the left. Jesus put Judas in full knowledge that, that Judas had already betrayed him, in full knowledge that Judas was going to be the one to sell him out, in full knowledge that he'd been, be hanging on the cross in excruciating pain, mainly because of Judas. Jesus put him on the left, in the place of honour. And not only did Jesus put him on the left, but Jesus offers him a special morsel from the plate, a choice morsel. And the morsel that Jesus offered him was the morsel that was reserved for an honoured guest. So not only had Jesus poured into him over the last three years of his ministry, but even now, at this table, Jesus was assigning him the primary spot. He was lavishing honour and grace on Judas, in full knowledge that Judas had betrayed him. And you know, that is, that is agape love in action, overcoming evil with good. There's a quote, hopefully above me, um, from a Bible scholar called William Barclay, and he talks about agape love. And he says, agape is unconquerable benevolence, invincible goodwill. If we regard a person with agape, it means that no matter what that person does to us, no matter how he treats us, no matter if he insults us or injures us or grieves us, we will never allow any bitterness against him to dawn upon our hearts but will regard him with that unconquerable benevolence and goodwill, which will seek nothing but his highest good. So even in the moment of betrayal, Christ still lavishes love on Judas. And you know, Judas could have, could have chosen to respond to that love at that moment, but what Judas did instead is he hardened his heart. And at the instant he hardened his heart, he went to a place of no return, and Satan entered him immediately at that point, and he became a tool in Satan's hand. So why did Judas choose this? Why did, he, why did he choose this path of betrayal against Jesus? Well, no one really knows. There are lots of theories. Maybe he thought that Jesus washing his disciples' feet was a bit of a demeaning act. Maybe it was a bit... Um, he didn't want to be associated with someone who would stoop to washing his disciples' feet... Maybe he was a bit disappointed that Jesus hadn't turned out to be the victorious political leader that he wanted. Maybe he just was secretly resenting the other disciples and harboring resentment and jealousy against them. Maybe he was motivated just by greed. We don't really know. But whatever it was, we know that at the moment Jesus' love was spurned, Satan entered him. You know, and there's a word of warning for there that we can't miss this morning. Many of you, many of us, are in a unique position in that all of our 
not all of us, but for many of us, we've been under the sound of the gospel all of our lives. Some of us from a very young age. And we've heard about Jesus and we've heard about the wonderful things that he's done. We've heard the gospel message. We've heard the truth of God. If after hearing those things, we harden our hearts and we reject the love that has been lavished upon us, we can end up like Judas in a place where it's virtually impossible for us to repent. You know, and it says in um, Hebrews 6, it says it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So there's a warning there. There is a warning there. It's better in many ways not to have been exposed to the gospel and been exposed to the truth. Because people who are in the place where they have been, and yet they still reject that, they are in a place of no return. You know, what I found, find fascinating is, it's not the degree of sin. It's not the depth of sin or of failure. Because Peter denied Jesus. You can't get much worse than that. Peter denied Jesus Not for very much, to be honest. Despite him saying, I'll die for Jesus, I'll face any kind of persecution for Jesus, Peter denied Jesus and sold out Jesus just because of some mild social pressure, just because he didn't want to be embarrassed in the courtyard. That's quite a bad thing to do, isn't it? In many ways, that's not much different to what Judas did. But you know, the thing... The thing that caused Judas's demise, the thing that shut him off from the love of God and led to his destruction and ultimately his suicide and was the fact that he'd hardened his heart against the love of God, which was there for him even in the midst of his betrayal and even in the midst of his sin. So, you know, quite poignantly, the section ends with, that section ends with these words, and it says, and it was night, and it was night. It wasn't just physical night, but it was metaphorical night as well. Judas had revealed himself to be a servant of darkness. Even though he'd masqueraded himself as a servant of the light, he'd, ma- he'd found himself to be a servant of darkness, and it was night. And Judas showed himself to be a son of the night. And Jesus' night had also come, the night of his suffering, and the night of his, his torment, and the night of his, um, his death on our behalf. So it was night. And uh, next I just want to speak to you a little bit, just moving on, um, in verses 31 to 33, about the love of Jesus. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a love that conquers the pain of betrayal. It's a love that overcomes evil with good. But it's also a love that is displayed in the glory of the cross. It's displayed in the glory of the cross. Um, so as soon as... Judas, as soon as Satan enters Judas, as soon as Judas has gone past that line, the night of Jesus' suffering and death is ushered in. And what's remarkable then is that Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. I just want you to think for a moment about the implications of that, about the implications of Jesus being glorified in the cross. Basically, it means that God is supremely glorified in his son being executed 
as a criminal at the hands of a corrupt religious establishment um, and at the hands of a cruel Roman penal system. God is glorified in that. God is glorified in meaningless torture. God is glorified in excruciating suffering. God is glorified in nail-pierced hands. God is glorified in flowing crimson blood. God is glorified in the cries of a man who is destitute, abandoned and gripped by physical, emotional and existential pain. That's when God is glorified. That's when the God of the Bible is glorified. God is gloriously magnified in Jesus Christ in his death on the cross. His surrender, his selfless sacrifice, his cleansing blood, which flows as a fountain to all who will trust in him. That's how the God of the Bible is glorified. But isn't that a dramatic contrast to everything we see around us in the world? Everything that the world values. But we shouldn't be surprised by that because Jesus says, what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What the world values is success, status, appearance, money, all those things. Dominance, dominating over others, but not in God's logic. In God's logic, and the glory of God is associated with a cross. And also, to be honest, if you look at some of the other religions of the world as well, what it, you know, it's impossible, really, you know, with, with, with saying with the deepest love and respect for our Muslim friends, and, but really, the concept of God demeaning himself to the point of crucifixion is something which cannot be understood by a Muslim. And it's been said that, with some truth, in many ways, Muhammad was a warlord in many ways. He conquered, he went from place to place, pillaging and conquering, and glory was seen in the dominance and the subjugation of other, country, other cultures and countries. But the glory of the cross is very different. And what's glory in Buddhism and Hinduism? In Hinduism, the glory is in sophisticated reasoning, in philosophy, in, in escaping the reality that we live and achieving a state of nirvana, the glory of man's wisdom, but not the glory of a wooden cross, the glory of God. You know, and, and even at the time when, when Paul, Paul wrote, didn't he, in 1 Corinthians, he said, Jews request a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. So the glory of the cross. The love is, is shown in the glory of a cross. But also, and moving on to our fourth point, a love that, is, that conquers is displayed in a cross-shaped life. So Jesus moves on from talking about so much his own love as talking about how his love is going to manifest in the lives of his disciples. And we read about this new commandment in verse 34. And Jesus talks about a new commandment. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, so also you love one another. Now, the commandment to love is not a new commandment. In fact, that's as old as the Torah itself. 
Jesus, in fact, summarized the law by saying, the law is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. But the commandment is given a fresh expression in the light of Calvary. So if you look at the original commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, that really means that your self-love is the measure of how you should love others. So in other words, if I want to be treated well, if I want to be respected, if I want to be fed and clothed, then I should do that to other people. That's really what loving your neighbor as yourself means, because naturally we all want those things for ourselves. And so Jesus says we should treat our neighbor um, in that way. But what Jesus is doing is he's, he's reframing it and he's elevating the command to an even more staggering height, in a sense, in this, in this commandment. And he's saying that instead of our self-love being the measure of how we to lo- are to love others, instead of that being the standard, the standard is now that we are to love others in the way in which he has loved us which arguably is even more than, than some of us love ourselves. You know, The love of Jesus is an all-surpassing love. And that now is the standard that we are called to. That's the standard that took him to the cross. Do you know, we don't often think of love as, as an evangelistic strategy. You know, sometimes we kind of wrestle, we think, what can we actually do? It's so difficult, to be honest. I really struggle with this to sometimes know, well, what can we do? We know that we should be reaching people outside of the church, We know that God calls us to witness to people, so what can we do? And sometimes I think, well, maybe, you know, we try the street outreach, and, you know, that's great, you know, it's a good time, but it's not necessarily bringing in huge hordes, or is it door-to-door evangelism? You know, that that has its place as well, and Craig's doing a wonderful ministry with that. And then there have been um, others who have, people like Billy Graham, who have flown all across the world and heard these massive crusades, and and that brings people to, to Christ as well. But you know, that's all great. But, but Jesus says here that the most powerful form of evangelism is love. The most powerful form of evangelism is love. Because he says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. When Christianity was first being birthed in the Roman Empire, um, a Roman Empire that was trying to annihilate it and was very hostile towards it, um, Tertullian, um, who was one of the? Who was a, a North African theologian, one of the church fathers? And um, he said that the pagan people were often so struck and affected by the way that the Christians loved each other. And he said these words, famous words, that hopefully above me. He said, "It is mainly the deeds of love so noble that they lead many to put a brand upon us. See how they love one another." They say, "For they themselves are animated." by mutual hatred, how they are ready even to die for one another, they say, for they themselves will sooner be put to death. So Christianity had, had one big evangelistic strategy in the early world, and that was love. And we need to return to that and return to the strategy of love. But finally, you know, and this is really where I just want to you know, speak a little bit more. And finally, the love that conquers... It's a love that conquers the tragedy of human failure and sin. You know, Peter strikes me like an example of of so many of us today. 
He has all of the right intentions, like many of us do when we come to church. And then we come to church on a Sunday morning and we sing these words that are so stirring and we mean them. You know when, you know when Peter said, I'm ready to die for you, Jesus? I believe he really meant it then. He did really mean it. He wasn't just bluffing. He really, really meant it. And a lot of us do the same thing. You know, we come to church and we sing these songs, you know, wonderful songs, but like, I give you all my life, I lay it all down, a living sacrifice, no longer my own, all I am is yours. But then, unfortunately, that's all very short-lived and, you know, Monday morning comes and, and we don't feel quite the same way about it. And, you know, and, and basically, we end up like Peter, and we end up denying Jesus in, in a number of ways during the week. Um, but, you know, and, and as we've already said, with Peter, it wasn't that the threat of denying Jesus came when he had a knife to his throat. He just denied Jesus because it was just a bit socially awkward for him. And when he faced that social awkwardness, he crumbled in an instant, in a moment. And, and we do the same. But, you know, the reality is that we're all like Peter, in one way or another, we are all Peter. It says in, in James, it says, we all stumble in many things. All of us, we all stumble in many things. You know, <clears throat> I've been reading a book about marriage recently, um, one of those marriage preparation books. And, um, and one of the things that, that the pastor in that book um, keeps reiterating, he kind of told this story, actually, and he said... Um, he said, um, yeah, I think basically he said he was counselling someone who was hoping to get married, a woman, I think, to, to, um, to, to their boyfriend. And, and he was saying to him, oh, you know, what, what, what's the deal with this, with this guy? You know, what's going on with him? She said, oh, he's perfect. Um, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't have any problems at all. He's absolutely, he's absolutely perfect. And he said to him, what you need to do before you get married is you need to work out what that person's weaknesses are because he will have weaknesses. And he quoted this scripture, and he said in James, he said, we all stumble in many things. We all stumble in many things. We all do. I do, you do. We all do. That's just life. Um, you know, Hillsong <laughs> cannot always be regarded as, um, as, as necessarily an authority on matters of theology. But, you know, I think in this one phrase, they've really hit the nail on the head. It says, a thousand times... I've failed, but still your mercy remains. Should I stumble again, still I'm caught in your grace. I'm caught in your grace. I'm caught in your grace. You know, I don't want to diminish the severity of our sin, but to magnify the greatness of God's grace. You know, and, and even though Jesus knew that Peter would stumble at the very first hurdle, Jesus still loved him, he was still for him, he still prayed faithfully for him. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. You know, and maybe that's you this morning, maybe you feel that you have stumbled, and maybe you feel that you've stumbled a few too many times, and that this time you've just stumbled a bit too far and a bit too often. But you know, Jesus says that he's still praying for you. He's praying that your faith will not fail. And that when you're restored, you'll strengthen your brethren. That he's still got a call on your life. He's not finished with you yet. His grace is greater than your failures. 
And so, really, that is, that is my question, really, this morning. And that's just how I want to, to end um, this morning. You know, Jesus, Judas and Peter, they both failed. They both failed big time. But what was the difference before, between them? Judas ended up on a path of no return, a path of shame and disgrace that led to his destruction. Peter, however, ended up with a restored relationship with Christ. He fulfilled the kingdom, uh, the promises of God in his life. He did great and mighty things for the kingdom of God. But what was the difference? It wasn't just their degree of failure, but it was their response to Jesus' love for them. You know, and, and, and despite Jesus heaping as much love and honor on Judas as he could, even at the table, Judas still chose to decisively reject Jesus' love for him once and for all. And he did cry tears later, but they were tears of regret. They weren't tears of true repentance. You know, but you remember Peter, and it's just so moving, you know, when Jesus, just after he's denied Jesus, he's in the courtyard and, and he meets Jesus' eye and, and he sees in that gaze, he doesn't see judgment, but he just sees love, pure love. Nothing but love. Um, you know, and that's, that's the question for us, you know. How are we going to respond to that love this morning? You know, it's a love that conquers the pain of betrayal. It's a love that overcomes evil with good. Um, it's a love that's displayed in the cross. It's a love that displays, um, you know, that, that, that goes over human tragedy and failure. But how are we going to respond to that love this morning? How are we going to respond to the love of Christ this morning? Are we going to reject it, just cast it aside as, and say it's worthless? Or are we going to surrender to it, embrace it, be broken by it and be restored by it.